Heavenly Father, we will worship your holy name today. Lord, we are gathered here to serve and to praise and to honor your name. Lord, we know that we are not worthy, not worthy to be called your children. And Lord, we know that it's a gift. The gift of your love is free if we just choose to accept it. And Lord, we hope that you would come here today and speak through Randy. Let his words be your words so that we may love one another more and make more and better followers of you. And Lord, for those who don't know you here today, let them open up their hearts and their minds to listen and to be touched by you and be real to them in a personal, tangible way. Just ask that you do all these things. And it's in the name of your Son, Jesus, that we pray. And all his people said, Amen. You may be seated. So yesterday, I'm uh, going into my closet to uh, change clothes, to uh, get ready to go to the pool with my family, and I turn around and my three-year-old Levi has gone into the closet with me, and uh, I said, Levi, dude, what what you doing? What you need? Wait, why are you here? And he, he responds, he said, Daddy, I come into the closet with you uh, if you need a joke or need a question. What do you say to that? You know, I, I didn't necessarily need a joke at that moment, but he was there to offer. Uh, if I had a question, he obviously was going to give an answer. And uh, and it's just nice to have, you know, you know, some people have personal shoppers. I had a personal, I don't know, jester. I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I said that this morning. And, you know, the crazy thing is we walk into uh, settings like this, and it's almost like we're surprised that God is in the moment. <laughs> it's like, whoa, hey, wow, didn't expect you to hear God. Wow, in that song, in that moment, in this, in reading your word, and uh, sometimes we just get surprised by God, don't we? And we shouldn't, but I do that, we do that, and, and you know, the, the beauty of this moment is uh, he's interested in um, being here with us <laughs> and, uh, and, and sharing with us truth uh, that really only a, a life-changing uh, God can do. And so that's what I invite us uh, to jump into this morning, his truth. And last week, in case you weren't here, uh, we uh, danced a little bit and uh, it got a little ugly, uh, but we've recovered. Uh, the pictures are on Facebook and we've moved on and uh, the deed is done. Uh, but 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 what what was all of that really about? Well, in case you missed last week, we were reminded through the parable of the prodigal son that God sees everything, that he loves us, that he throws the best parties and he gives the best gifts. Good news. And our response to him out of that should be, yes, yes, God, I agree. You are so incredibly lucky to have me. No, no, of course not. Uh, actually, what we discover uh, in Scripture, uh, we find more often than not this attitude of the heart. God, I am blown away that you would choose to use me. I am completely unworthy. And uh, how you treat me and what you think of me just blows my mind. And this perspective is what we find in guys in the Bible like Peter and Paul and James and Jude and John and Moses, all of whom actually define themselves with the same word. 
all of those men defined themselves and their relationship to God with the word bond servant. Not necessarily the most glamorous word or the most understood word for us, but we do find the uh, the background of that word in Deuteronomy 15. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want to. We're not going to look at specific verses there. We are going to look at specific verses in Luke 10, if you want to jump ahead to Luke 10. But in, in Deuteronomy 15, what we find is uh, uh, slaves being described as uh, people that could go through, go free after uh, six years of service, right? And uh, crazy enough, uh, although you would expect them all to jump ship at that time, many of them would actually choose to stay. Uh, some of them uh, chose to stay uh, because they really had a hard time making a living outside of the master's house. The six years were up, they went out, and uh, and and the economy was such, or their skills were such, or whatever was such, that they were having a hard time existing on their own. Others chose to stay because they just were connected so much to the master and his house. Over the past six years, they had grown comfortable in that experience and just quite honestly didn't want to leave. And so Scripture defines that critical moment in Deuteronomy chapter 15 where when a slave actually chose to stay, uh, they actually took that slave to the doorpost of the house and would use a, a sharp instrument that they would put maybe holes in uh, wood or other types of material, uh, an owl, a, um, a, um, a, a spike of sorts, and drive it into the earlobe of the slave. Literally, for, for a moment, attaching the slave to the house physically. I mean, he's, he's now completely one with the house, right? And then, uh, then they would remove that spike, that instrument, and, and, and in that hole that was made in their ear, put a gold earring. And that earring would symbolize the fact that now they were a part of the master's family for the rest of their lives. That they were indeed a bond servant. Uh, such bond servants were usually trusted with more of the master's uh, 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 affairs than a normal slave would be. They were, uh, although still servants, considered part of the family. They were serving the master, but they were engaged in much more intimate details with the master's business, and they were a part of his family. And so these men in both Old and primarily New Testament defined themselves in their relationship with the Heavenly Father with that word. Isn't that interesting? The question that I have for myself and for us this morning is, does that define us when we wake up in the morning? Do we see ourselves in that way saying, God, thank you for entrusting me with this small yet vital piece of your affairs here. You know, we had 150 people that did that this past week. They woke up every morning, right? Uh, and, and they said, God, thank you for entrusting me with this little piece of your affairs here on the earth called Vacation Bible School. And almost 400 kids flooded this campus with 150 volunteers, middle school, high school, and adult, you know, engaged in the affairs of our Lord. Amazing, incredible week. 
to serve, to give, to love. For what purpose? So that those 150 could earn some spot in heaven? Uh, There are some religions that believe that that is why they did it. To uh, gain more favor with God? To get more pluses than minuses in the right column? You know, an expert in the law asked Jesus this question in Luke chapter 10. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response you know, it was a little shocking. Uh, his response was, well, what you do is you work three VBSs in the four and five-year-olds. You teach your kid John 3.16 and make sure that you're at least one food packing event in the year. So what? No. Jesus answered him by actually leading him to the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God, Luke 10, with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. This man was reminded that eternal life is ours because of a relationship that we have with a real God. Not because we can do enough to earn a ticket to heaven or because of who we inherently are or because we work enough hours with children at the church. Now, notice the second portion of the man's response. He responds, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is not a contradiction to the first commandment. The first commandment is about the relationship, is about the love relationship that we have, that God wants us to have with him. But then all of a sudden there's this love your neighbor component. This what this is going to take something out of me. This is a doing thing that is what? Wow. But it's not a kind. It's actually an action that occurs out of the overflow of a heart that is captivated by the love of God, by someone who is devoted, who is surrendered completely to the God of the universe. Someone who is serving the master, entrusted with the master's affairs, a part of his family, a bondservant. The man pushes Jesus a little bit further. And who is my neighbor, Jesus? Well, we don't have all the facts as to why he wanted clarification in this matter. But for whatever reason, he wanted to define what is is. We do have, though, Jesus' response, a look into the mission of one who is fully devoted, who is completely surrendered. We see the heart of a servant. And in this moment, he opens our eyes to this other parable. So we're in the parable of the prodigal son last week. This week we're in another very common parable for most of our ears. It has to do with the Good Samaritan. He starts it off this way. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's about 40 miles. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, and this is where we're going to camp out a little bit, the hero, who he is, what he did. Back to verse 33. And when he, the Samaritan, saw him, the beat-up guy lying half dead on the road, he took pity on him. And this moment, this story actually reminds me a lot of Matthew chapter 9. Because in Matthew chapter 9, we find the ministry of Jesus going on, and Jesus heals uh, two blind guys and a mute demon-possessed guy. And uh, and the, the religious leaders are going, 
There's no way you could be doing that, Jesus, unless you've got like the power of Satan inside of you or something. So he's getting criticized from the church. He's getting all this ministry involved all around him. And he's just he's just immersed in this sea of need. And then it describes Jesus in verse 36 this way. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He's filled with compassion for what he sees. He's allowed himself to become immersed in this in this need that is all over. And, and last uh, last last month, uh, Ron uh, purchased a big block of tickets. The church did for our staff to go to a Rangers game together. And uh, and so uh, and and uh, amazing seat. Uh, we were at the very top row in right field. And. Um, And so we're up at the very top and um, and I get there a little late. Right. And uh, just into the first inning. And I, I'm there with four of my kids. Uh, Lindley is not there. She's with Holly at home, which ended up being a really good thing. Um, but uh, we find our seats and we're sitting there and literally our backs are. I mean, here's if you've if you've ever had the beautiful opportunity of sitting up that high in right field, there's a there's a fence there right behind your back. And then it's just like, you know, it's just nothing. It's just open air. But you are covered right here, which is kind of cool. Right. And so so it's blocking some sun or whatever from you. And so and so we're sitting there and the game ends uh, the top of the first inning, start at the uh, bottom of the second inning. And we get uh, through one batter. And I look back and there is this dark, ominous cloud approaching. Some of you might remember this game. I was unaware that actually, and I've lived in Texas a lot of my life. I didn't realize North Central Texas actually had monsoons, but um, apparently it does. And so it starts coming this direction. And Holly had told us, take some umbrellas. I mean, it could get a little dicey. It looks like some storms in the area. So I did, being the conscientious dad, I packed up my Wonder Bread umbrella, which I still don't know to this day why I own. And... Um, <clears throat> And and I and I kind of hunkered down. Right. And so it started. The wind started picking up. The rain started coming in and the rain was not horizontal, uh, vertical. It was completely horizontal. And so it's like aiming straight at us. And so I'm literally I'm sitting on part of the umbrella. I've got Levi right here. I've got Silas right here. The girls have their own umbrella and we're like this. And I'm holding on like this. I mean, you know, all the players have evacuated. I think the players went home for a while. They're gone, right? And we're, we're like holding on, like, and I'm, out, I'm like, oh, when is this going to be over? You know, it's like amazing. I mean, little kids are being washed down the stairs. I mean, it's just, and you know, I'm, I'm looking for seat belts. I'm doing whatever I can. And we're holding, and uh, and I turn to my left, and I kid you not, uh, Michael Flores is over here next to me, um, and like, I don't know, dude, you like, you didn't have an umbrella. He's like, which you would expect from a worship leader. I think he's singing in the rain. He's just like, here he is, you know, just out here. I mean, just like drenched, just like, you know, and we're like hunkered down, ah, you know. Okay, in that moment, in that picture, I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this, this Jesus moment in Matthew chapter 9, and it, and it hits me. It hits me, right? I'm, I'm doing this to shield myself as best as possible. I saw what was coming, but I was shielding. 
And Jesus, as he was walking through the crowd, he saw it, but he just allowed himself to be immersed in the need. He was in that moment with everything that was around, and he wasn't going, well, I can't look at that. Well, don't want to get wet here. Well, no, I got a game to watch. I need to stay dry. There's a lot of things on my agenda. I better, no, you know what? He was Flores in the rain. Right? He was there. Seeing and compassionate toward what he saw. He allowed himself to see the need and was connected with God the Father in such a way that he was able to have his Father's heart for what was going on around him. Verse 33. He had his eyes open and his soft heart there for the world. I I wonder if they need anything up there at that church. I mean, it looks like things are going pretty well. I mean, they, they handled VBS okay, you know. I mean, just... I just want to come in here and kind of do my thing, my worship thing. They take care of my, my kids pretty well. I mean, they give them all back to me in the end, so that's good. Um, and, and, I mean, Rock Point's got a good thing going on. I mean, it looks like there's a lot of committed people at that church. I mean, really, a lot of commitment. That's, that's good. That's good. That's good. Verse 34, he went to him back to the Samaritan. And bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. In my mind, it's doubtful at this moment that Sam, the Samaritan, was traveling with some hand sanitizer, rubber gloves, and a Johnson & Johnson medical kit. I'm thinking he got a little bit dirty in this moment. I'm thinking he couldn't help but get dirty as he probably ripped a portion of his robe or garments off to start to bandage up this dying man. He didn't just call 911. He was 911 in that moment. And the reality of living out this life of a bondservant is that when we do it, it is a call to action, a call to get messy. And the reason why it's a call to get messy is because we are messy. <laughs> People are messy. This world is a mess. And whether it's working through marital challenges in the small group that I'm a part of or walking a high school student through all of the crazy temptations that are involved in their lives as they're moving through adolescence or whether it's through changing a six-year-old's diaper at the 930 hour, life is messy. And yet we find in this moment this man has this soft heart because his eyes are open and he allows himself to feel what God feels in that moment. He has dirty hands and he has what might make us most uncomfortable of all, an open wallet. Verse 34, pouring on oil and wine, then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. Stopping cost this man resources of time, energy, effort, money. Earlier in the story, we find the two guys, right, that walked by, the religious dudes that kept on walking. They kept themselves detached. They kept themselves detached, their eyes from their heart. They kept themselves detached, their hands from the dirt. They kept themselves detached, their wallet 
from the need. So the question is this morning, how do we do it? How do we stay attached to his affairs? Actually, it appears to be a major reason why this parable is spoken by Jesus, how to engage the messy world. Who are we when we do that? Maybe a fresh look at this man, the Samaritan. Because, you know, quite frankly, this dude was not well liked in the world that he walked. I don't know if you know much about Jews and Samaritans and the history there. And we won't go through all the history lesson because it's a long one. You can Wikipedia it later. But. Just as in our culture, you get the joke, right? You get the joke that somebody's about to say, and they're like, okay, there's the priest, the rabbi, and the preacher. And they're going to launch into this, you know, three people or three scenarios or three whatever. That's been around for a long, long time. That's just a great way to tell a story. You set up three different people, three different scenarios, three different situations, whatever. And in this moment, Jesus is setting up that story. But he blows their minds. Because rather than going the traditional Priest, rabbi, preacher mode, he goes, priest, rabbi, terrorist. He goes, Samaritan. The relations between them were awful. Jews considered Samaritans these, these idol-worshipping, pagan-marrying half-breeds. And as a matter of fact, in A.D., somewhere between 6 and 9, a bunch of Samaritans ransacked the temple. They came in in the midnight at Passover time and scattered human remains all over it. Now, here's the deal. Jews had not forgotten about that. They didn't like the Samaritans. So the Samaritan is in this moment not where you would expect him to be. Because really, where would we expect him to be in the story? Well, the guy hurt. The guy over here along the road, almost half dead because of who he is, right? And the hero comes in and saves the day because he's the religious leader who sees and becomes heroic in rescuing the one who is just downtrodden and, you know, sorely looked upon by the world. And Jesus flips it around. And as he creates this story to teach everybody a lesson, he puts people in different places than what people think they should be in. The Samaritan is the hero. And the Samaritan, though, is the one who's rejected, who is the one in need of mercy himself, who's certainly not serving out of his own strength or who he thinks he is or what he can bring to the table. He's serving out of his weakness. Recognizing that he too is messy and imperfect. And so our calling as bond servants is one that parallels that of the Samaritan. Jumping into action. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And by the way, we don't see this Samaritan at the end of the story getting like a medal of honor receiving the Humanitarian of the Year Award. His work was largely done unnoticed, unrecognized, except maybe for the half-dead guy and the innkeeper. Which brings us back to the description of God followers. Peter, Paul, John, Jude, 
They define themselves as a bondservant. The Greek word for bondservant was also used to describe galley slaves who were underneath the boat, a large vessel below the deck, rowing it mile by mile across the torrential rains and storms and seas. And for whatever reason, that word also characterized followers of God. I think we can think of several reasons why it would. A few thoughts as we close up this morning. In the Samaritan story, a question that comes to mind is, what is it that keeps us from being Sam the Samaritan, from picking up the oar and just rowing? I think one of the things that keeps us from doing that is this uh, tendency to uh, say, you know, really, God, I'll row whenever it feels right. I, it, it doesn't really feel right right now. It's not necessarily that convenient. After all, I'm probably not really needed. I mean, they had everything taken care of last week at the church. I mean, that's why the church pays those pastors, right? And those ministry leaders. The reality is that God calls each of us to row. And not only does God call us into action as his children, but he's given us some responsibilities. You may say, oh, yeah, I remember sermons like this. I mean, we're going to launch into like, First Corinthians, we've all got gifts, and we're going to talk about being parts of the body. And you know what? We're going a different route than the traditional. We're just going to look at the heart of a servant and let the let our hearts be captivated by this Samaritan. I serve not because God needs me or because I feel guilty or because it makes me feel good, but because I love him and I want to worship him and obey him and because when my life gets aligned with his, I have this joy and peace and purpose and fulfillment. And I can't help but bringing him pleasure by picking up an oar and rowing. And it's not about whether or not I feel like it. My guess is that the sermon didn't feel like stopping. The Samaritan didn't feel like stopping. And we already know by the Garden of Gethsemane example our Savior didn't feel like climbing on the cross. I think another thing that keeps us from picking up the oar is this thought that rowing is somehow irrelevant to everybody else. I mean, my rowing is. People row better than I do. Certainly they could stop and render aid better than me. You know, if, if that would have stopped the Samaritan, he would have been just like the other two guys. The reality is we're all people who have gifts to offer. Leaders help perpetuate this. If I could just share for a moment, we're horrible at helping you guys sometimes. Whether we're paid or in volunteer status, you know why? Because if we've been around the church for very long, it's so easy for some of us, for me, I've done this, right? To just pick up the oar and row and row and row and look out at the rest of the people and go, you know what? But I know how to do this. And you know what? I can do this better. 
And you know what? If I take time to teach somebody else to do this, then they might not do it as well as me. And as a matter of fact, we might get charted off on a course this direction. And if I start going this direction with them, that means it's going to take even more effort for me to get back over here to where we're supposed to be. And as leaders, we oftentimes don't hand over the oar. Because for whatever reason, internally, we think we ought to be the ones that just keep it. And we make you feel like your efforts are irrelevant, not needed, unnecessary. The truth is leaders should be constantly looking for ways to replicate themselves in ministry. But leaders often attempt to try to do it all. And then they become burned out. Their place on the ship is lost. Oftentimes they fall off the ship. (laughs) The story of the Good Samaritan would have looked markedly different if he had based his decision on convenience. Or if he had based it on his professional skills. I mean, after all, look what he had. He had oil and wine. A piece of cloth. And a couple of bucks. Kind of reminds me of a previous story. With a dude that had five loaves and two fish. That's all he had. But again, notice it wasn't about what we bring to the table. It's not. It's not about that. The miracles that God does, the hope and the healing in the midst of the storm is not about my abilities, not about my talents. If I think I'm all that and a bag of chips, 90s reference, I know. Part of what God wants to do in me is grab a hold of my face and go, it's not about you. It's about me. The miracle happens when I get involved, Randy. Now pick up the oar and let's do this. Because I want to show you some things in the journey that you don't get to see about me and this lost world and life in general and your purpose if you keep it down. Say, well, where do I start? I think we start at the doorpost. We start going, okay, God, yes, I've been around you. I've been connected to you. I get that I'm in your family, but my, my vision, what I see and where my heart is, I want to be all in. I want to be all in. I want you to take my ear and I want you to pierce it and I want everybody to know that your affairs are my affairs, period. That wherever you want me to pick up the paddle and go for it, I'm in. I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'm going to row this boat of your grace and mercy and peace and healing. Not away from the storm of need, but right into the storm of need. God, the wallet of my life is wide open. My resources, my time, my effort... It's yours. So how does that look specifically? I don't know what it looks like for you. Our church is growing, but so are the opportunities. We've got international opportunities. You guys were amazing. Every kid that we had a picture of, off the table, boom, done. Sponsorship, as much as we had pictures before we left for Belize, taken off the table. Wow. That number starts to turn. Really cool. Guess what? We took the remaining 125 kids' pictures while we were there. 
So if you missed out as an opportunity, we have the opportunity to finish out real soon when we start putting the pictures back in that hallway. And before we know it, an entire school in Belize will be sponsored by our church. Internationally, opportunities abound. We've got this Belize option with the high school. They got fundraisers still going on. You want to be a part of that? Jump in. You can be all in. You, know, you want to be involved in things? We've got people in Africa right now that are serving. Short term, long term, you pick. God, where do you want my heart? Where do you want my money? Where do you want my effort? I'm going to pick up the oar. You just say where. Locally, how cool was it? I don't know if you noticed or not, but the fifth grade, we're doing a completely different thing at VBS this year. They weren't in the big room. Instead, they met outside, did some worship time, had some small group devotional time, then got in a bunch of vans, 50 of them with their sponsors, right, and headed out all week to do localized mission work, our fifth graders. They were at CCA, they were at Christ Haven, they were in nursing homes. You saw the pictures. They rolled up their sleeves. They were in the need, in the moment. Made space here for more people to come and be involved, fourth grade and under. Gave them an opportunity to give of themselves, to ramp up VBS in their lives in some really cool ways. We have partnerships localized all over the area. All you got to do is say, okay, God, you know what? Pierce my ear. I'm going to pick up the row. I'm going to pick up the oar. I'm ready. Where do you want me? Point me in the direction, God. It's not about what I bring to the table. I realize that. It's all about you. Within these four walls, so to speak, we've got needs that are about to just really get ramped up. We've got a Saturday night service that's about to start this fall. Everywhere I talk. Everywhere I'm around, I'm hearing people excited about Saturday night. This is going to be so much fun. We're going to have a blast. Can't wait for Saturday night. Can't wait for Saturday night. Can I just tell you, some of you that are so incredibly excited for Saturday night, the best thing you can do is only sit in here for 50% of it. And the other 50% be serving on the other side of that wall. And then maybe flip-flop and job share with somebody else so that you can be in a service on Sunday morning. The other 50%, you can be serving you know, over there or whatever. Some of you, it would be double duty. Some of you, you'll come in here to serve, go worship on Sunday, or vice versa. Can I just tell you, none of that's going to be convenient, but it's going to provide more opportunity for more people to come in here and engage a life-transforming God. And yes, it's going to be involving rolling up our sleeves, but the reality is, if we don't, (laughs) then we miss out on what God wants to do in this moment. What He wants to do inside of us. Our efforts just on the weekend experience when we launch Saturday this fall, we've got to see at least a 25% increase in our workforce. 25% of servant hours ramped up. That's a minimum. Because we're going to do programming all the way through fifth grade. What is it going to mean when I pick this up? For some of you, you're already picking it up and you're going. You're like, I'm tired. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Okay, then maybe the greatest thing that you can do in the next two months is find somebody else to do it with you. Because we need to double up so that we're ready for what God is wanting to do here. Because I don't know if you have heard yet, but, you know, we're on schedule to finish out the building process here. 
And it's really cool. And that's why you see the journey thing wrapped around the stage because we're still in this moment, right, of the journey. You know, when that happens, <laughs> it's inevitable. People start walking. Well, I wonder what they're doing at that church. Well, check that out. They're growing. Something's happening there. Well, they don't know we've been growing all along, right? But all of a sudden, physically, they see something and more people show up. And my question is, are we ready out there for that? Are we ready by the doors? Are we ready ushering? Are we ready greeting? There's opportunities internationally, locally, within our four walls. Is it convenient? No. Is it going to involve getting my hands dirty? Yes. Is it going to involve opening my wallet of resources of time and effort and money? Yes. And God is saying, child of mine, who I love and see and throw amazing parties for and give good gifts to, can I just tell you, will you do this? Will you pick up the oar? Because when you do, you open the party up for more people. Because the party that I'm throwing is not just for you. It's for people that are not yet apart. They're on the guest list. They just need to see they're welcomed. And there's a place for them. And there's a God who wants to meet their needs. And be in the middle of their mess. God, thanks for stepping into the middle of our mess. And meeting us in our moment. And God, this call is pretty incredible. This call to take up our cross, to take up our oar <laughs> and follow you. And God, I, I realize what we do, what I do sometimes, God, is I look at my Google calendar and try to figure out where to fit you in in relationship to the call. But God, it's not about where I fit you in. It's about is my ear hammered to your door? Whatever, whenever. God, thank you for the invitation to be on the journey. Literally, the journey with you. And God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room who have already stepped out of just being a creation of yours into being a child of yours. God, as they've already been grafted into your family, God, I pray that you would help them find the next step of obedience, of service, of where you want them intimately involved in the affairs of your work. With your heads bowed, take a moment to just ask God, God, what did you want me to get out of this morning? Are there areas of my life that are not, that aren't gelling with who you are, with your character? Do I need to come at this moment and as the psalmist said, ask you to just create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. God, is that 
what you want me to do. As we prepare our hearts in that way, we're about to take the Lord's Supper. The band's going to play. This moment is going to be open for us to be grateful and to focus our attention on the most incredible example of servant that we could ever know. The suffering servant. 